Welcome to this episode of the magazine Debrief. Uh, my name is John Severs and I'm here as usual with Dan Worth. Hi, Dan. Hello. And Gronya Hallahan. Hi, Gronya. Hello. And we are discussing the 28th of May edition of the magazine, just before half term. So I hope you're all, you've all got a lovely half term planned. Okay, so the first feature we are looking at, and it, it's quite a big one in terms of scope, Gronya. Yes. So John Morgan has written our cover this week, tackling, I'd say, arguably the biggest question all teachers and students, if we're honest, ask themselves and should be asking themselves regularly. What is the point of school? So if we don't know what the point of school is, then really, how can you get up each day and go into a classroom and teach or send your children into a school building and allow them to be taught? We can probably all agree that there is a point to giving people an education and Probably that there were several points to it, but when schools had to switch to online learning, the Institute of Fiscal Studies produced this number of £40,000. And this £40,000 is the amount that students, according to them, will lose in earnings due to the school closures. So this raised the debate in amongst us and I know among other teachers. So is the point of school to make money? Is that is that why we give children education or is there actually more more to this? So the piece takes us through some of the mathematics behind that figure, pulling apart, pulling apart exactly how they worked out that putting in Macbeth and an understanding of rock formations into the brain during childhood will output pound coins in adulthood. And then once that figure has been explained, John looks at some of the studies which say that education equals more salary and better marriages and better health. And the truth is, it is really hard to calculate what is school and what is upbringing and what is random fortune and random misfortune. And one study looked at how even siblings in the same family who received different levels of education ended up with different earnings, different levels of health, different levels of happiness. And another where children were taken out of social deprivation and given what's considered a good education and consequently went on to have better lives. And they surveyed these children at age 15 and at age 19 and at age 27 and at 40 and at 55. And they said that as adults, they had better self-control, better reasoning, better decision-making, having had a good education. So the piece looks at why maybe we shouldn't be looking at finances and the social aspect as two separate things, but rather two things that are actually interlinked and are dependent on each other. And it's a it's a really interesting piece because we talk about, you know, money and jobs and careers as being like this end goal. But actually, it's it's so much more than that. And, you know, for, for me, I think you, I also feel as if we need to question some of these things that we're saying you know, this is a good outcome. One of the things that uses a measure is, you know, you've not been divorced or you've got good health. And a lot of this stuff, you know, it's it's tricky, isn't it? We're putting our values onto these these outcomes when actually that's not necessarily true, that that's a better way to be. And um, yeah, it made me think back to to my own time at school. And I remember my head teacher, year seven, first day, assembly, and say, you know, some people will say, my head teacher stood up in front of all of us, little year sevens. Some people say that school is preparing you for life. And I believe that here at St. At Benedict's, what we're doing is we're preparing you for death. Wow. And it's that, it's not, and I, I know that sounds really scary. I remember feeling quite scared of that idea when I, was, when I was 11. But actually what he's saying is it's not about what you go on to do. It's about the sort of person you are. And that matters more. And I think I, I, that's... I feel like there was perhaps a more eloquent way of suggesting that, like 
I feel like that's that's it was a Catholic school, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I I went to Catholic school, and they do like these bleak, uh, rather bleak pronouncements. That when you look into it, there are some some really interesting concepts, like you said. But as a year seven, I'm not sure I'd have looked past the preparation. But I for remembered death, but... it. I remembered. That. I can even remember how I felt when he said it. Like it was really really scary. But actually, I do think that it's so much more than just what you learn and what you get in your exams. It's about are you are you bringing up are you bringing these people into the world to be like kind people and good people and thoughtful people like that that matters doesn't it yeah and i i I sat down to write my leader on this this week and i I really struggled because you know you've got 600 words maximum and you're trying to trying to explain something that john morgan managed to get into about three thousand words for his cover feature and I kept writing false starts. And then I came to the conclusion, I said, well, what did education do for me? Like, you know, what, what am I, if I'm the product of my education, what did it give me? And then I just thought, right, I'm going to write down off the top of my head six, seven things that I remember from school that, that I think shaped some, some part of me. So I'm going to do it to you. Just You have no time, so we'll start with you, Gronya, because you were just talking. Just off the top of your head, tell me seven things about school. Um, about tolerance? About um, I learned. Also, I learned. I learned how to read before I went to school, but I learned how to enjoy books. I had teachers that taught me that books are a way to escape, and writing is a fun thing to do. Taught me to be kind. That was a strong message, especially when I was at primary school. Art definitely taught me a love of art and um, how to how to understand paintings, poetry. And thinking about my A-level lessons and how when I studied English literature at A-level taught me how to like decode and that, that fun, that, that excitement of when you get a poem and figuring out like what the puzzle is, like what the mystery is behind the poem, like what it actually means. And I remember when that clicked for me when I was in year year 12 and that being like a really special moment. I love that. Um, what did What else did I get from school? And friendships, lots of really, really special friendships that matter to me even now years after we don't we have nothing in common other than the fact we went to the same school building for five years but really really good friends from that dan you've had a bit more time to think uh yeah i mean i guess i was going down with more practical things in terms of like things i remember doing like the two and ten tours that was something that i found quite i think was quite impactful for me in learning things throughout like resilience it was it was hard you know being out on the wild windy moors of dartmoor it wasn't education but i learned a lot you know what i mean and um but yeah same growing you're like English, particularly in poetry and books and decoding books and enjoying that and sort of deconstructing texts and reading between the lines and all that good stuff. And obviously friendships as well. Yeah, a lot of good friends from school that I still speak to now. And I think generally just a sort of slight sense of inbuilt confidence. I'm certainly not not in the kind of, you know, the Eton type way of the world, but but enough to sort of feel like, yeah, you know, I've got something to say or I don't need to be a wallflower or, you know, there's, there's enough that I, I do know what I'm talking about. And I suppose also... In ways I don't know where it started. I couldn't tell you a lesson or a teacher that particularly did, but just just a willingness to ask questions, which actually is, is something I was thinking about for, for a piece I'm going to talk about. But just that sense of being inquisitive about the world, and it's like learning doesn't stop when you finish school or when you finish the book. It's like you can read another book or you can read a counter argument, or you know, which I think is is one reason I became a journalist because that idea of someone saying something and going, "Is that true?" Like you've just said that with a great authority, but I don't believe you, or I'm going to check your source and I'm going to go find out. And I like history for that as well. So. Yeah, very clever ruse there, John Severs, making us think about school. I know, and it's the thing, I, it really helped me in the writing of the leader because 
actually, we can have all these big grand pronouncements about the value of school, but really school is such a personal experience. And um, I say in the leader that, you know, one of education's great gifts is is a mass intervention that allows a personal journey still, allows some personalization to that. And I think once we're looking at the value of education, really, if you, you can look at the, you know, these grand outcomes. And as you said, Gonya, I think some of them are quite questionable in terms of, you know, it's a values judgment. But also, if we get into the, the individual experience, we can see, you know, what you really treasure. And I think some of the things that I put in the leader, which you can read, available in all, on all good TES websites not in, and, and and news agents. Um, but it, it's these weird personal moments that first came into my mind about school. And it's these weird things I hadn't thought about for ages. But I thought, oh, I remember, I remember that moment. It was something that was pivotal in my life. And I think with education, you can get tied up in, yeah, it might make you earn more. But that's a majority view. Like, not everyone does. And there's this, this, this shift and also, towards the average. So what? So what that you earn more? It, it, I, don't, I don't actually get why that's seen as a, like, that's a, always a good outcome. If you earn enough so that you don't have to live in poverty and you earn enough to, like, that's, that's an important measure. But just because you earn more doesn't mean you're necessarily happier or that you've led a better life. You can earn lots of money and murder your family. It doesn't. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that is what we're Wow. Well, it's funny you said it because I've gone I, straight I, to murder. <laughs> well, I thought, read, reading this piece, I did think one thing I struck me all the studies was I thought they were saying about certain people had, you know, were getting other sort of good metrics out of school and PSHE is an important thing. But I did think, but there is a, you know, um, money doesn't make you happy, but it affords a certain quality of misery, right? You can, <laughs> yes. you're going to, you're going to have yes. a better life. You're going to be healthier if you can afford to buy food from Waitrose, for example, mm. rather than, you know, uh, the corner shop or whatever, you know, I mean, it's just money does link to these things. And this idea that like, we should look at them as independent things, obviously not, they actually link and they link partly because if you do earn more and to your point, not millions, but just, just a salary that is enables you to, to have a life and or to go on a holiday for a week, you know, like a good holiday, that sort of, isn't that sort of going to be part of a big tapestry of being a healthier, happier person? Because you can fly to a sun, sunny country for a week and enjoy it. Not that you're sort of going, oh, we can't afford anything. And, you know, but, but also you, you don't want to put everything on education like that. Because like I say, it doesn't mean you can, you can not have holidays and still be a very happy person because you're just inherently happy and school might have provided that for you. So it's a really complex thing in this piece. I really enjoyed it because it's so, it, it brings in so many elements of studies and research that sort of touch on these things about, you know, and sort of poses these questions. And to your point there, John, as a final thing, the My Best Teacher podcast, I mean, quite obviously no one's going to suddenly say, oh, well, I love school because I'm now really rich or successful. But because no one would say that, though, would they? Because it's all, their memories are all, oh, this amazing lesson or this this day trip out or this sort of, I remember in the lunch, yeah, I made someone laugh and, and that was great. Or the teacher like showed an interest in my poetry. You know, it's all those sort of moments we aren't, you cannot quantify at all. You cannot put a metric to it. And so the only metric we can put it on is money. So we do it for money and that's, oh, well, they learned a lot. Therefore, their education is more successful because we can't metric that moment a teacher made a pupil feel valued because what there's no such metric exists so we kind of default to the money side but obviously we all know the other stuff's going on we just can't sort of put it in a report do you know what i hate i hate it when people say like work hard at school otherwise you'll end up working on the checkouts you'll end up working in the checkout mm. supermarket as if that's like a Can sign you of, say that oh I, I, I used to work um i used to work in top shop on the tills and i'd have people say to their they're teenagers. You've got to work hard at school, otherwise you'll end up like her, working on the t- just working on a hill. <laughs> it's like, 
actually, I really enjoy my job and it's, it's very fulfilling. <laughs> well, I'm also, people, I mean, I, yeah, a lot of times. Those, swines. Yeah, I know. And also supermarkets are very good for promoting internally. Like lots of people mm, go yeah. from that. Uh, but also yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah. I don't know about you two, but I think about that sometimes. I think about, you know, when you're having a stressful day, you think it must be nice to have a job sometimes which is very tangible and you just do something every day and you finish it and you go home. Mm, and like, mm. I worked in a supermarket and I did quite enjoy it for that because every, everything was very like, I arrived, I did my job, I went home and there was none of that background mental like, oh I've got that report due tomorrow and deadline approaching and all you know it was just nice to have a job this, like that. I think it's quite satisfying this is from years and years ago but I do know a school when they gave out the mock GCSE results they did like a, a results day so they handed them all out and to the children that failed they gave them applications to work in McDonald's right yeah well that was that like job thing that McDonald's did wasn't it but it's like, like to teach them a lesson like you've got to work yeah. otherwise you end up in McDonald's and that's no, it's no, no. just so rude it's so and it's it, it I think this is part of the problem why people struggle to engage with education with with um with some people who have certain attitudes in education they have this value of well if you don't go to university and get a degree you've in, you've somehow failed like your life is not you could be clever enough to go to university, not go to university, go and do a job that you you just have you enjoy, and you've you're successful at life. It's success isn't always what what we've done as as people that work in education. Does that make sense? Like mm, just because your life doesn't mirror, yeah. mirror theirs, yeah, doesn't yeah. mean it's somehow lesser. Anyway, I'm hoping that this feature will will create this sort of debate across education because i think we're at a point now where we're sort of resetting and we're deciding what was good before and what we should carry on doing and i think that this stuff has to feed into that narrative um at the moment so have a read um john's done an amazing job on this feature as has helena amas who's who's edited it and um, it's taken a lot of time but i think it's, it's definitely worth it Okay, so from the value of education to the um, helplessness or learned helplessness of boys, is that what we're heading towards, Dan? Yes, that's a good way of putting it. This is a piece by Mark Roberts who's talking about why boys particularly don't ask questions um, and how you can find ways to try and address that. And, and you know, and he touched on quite a few reasons and sort of examples. I'm sure most teachers will recognise these things, you know, when a, from the, like, you don't want to seem weak in the class, you don't want to be embarrassed when you, you ask a question that you probably should know. And that moment of the teacher saying, you know, anyone got any questions? And no one dare put their hand up um, to ask a question because for some reason, again, is that, is, a, is that a societal thing, like a learned thing? I suspect it is. And um, because actually it made me think, because I, as I mentioned before, I've done some brief stint of lecturing and I did a um, course with a bunch of first year students. And I used to say, I always say, any questions to anyone? And there was one girl and she was from, I think I'm right saying Slovakia, and she was brilliant. She would ask endless questions, just so many questions, so interested. And she was there to study, to learn to be a journalist. And I was there with, you know, X years of experience of a journalist. And so I think she just saw, oh, here's someone who can answer all my questions that I've got in my head. All the other people, which, you know, were British predominantly, didn't say a word. And as they were first years, they, and then, you know, you'd go around afterwards and speak to them and say, did that all make sense? You know, okay, one-to-one. And they go, well, actually, I didn't quite understand what, you know, and it was like the entire concept of the lesson. And you think, well, why didn't you say something? But is that a cultural thing? Is she was she more confident because in their country asking questions is thing? Anyway, clearly a thing, but it's a good piece because it, it addresses that issue of why boys don't ask questions. And, and as a final point, when I was a news editor and I had a team of reporters, I often used to say to them, one of the most powerful things you can do in an interview is say to someone, I don't know anything about this. Can you tell me? You know, that, that's not a weakness. It's being honest. And if you and, and they'll open up more or they drop their guard a bit. You know, sort of, it's a way of starting a conversation. So saying to the teacher, I don't know, actually, I didn't quite understand all that. Should be a good thing, right? But obviously peer pressure and all these things come into it, so it's hard. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, 
it's an interesting piece because it deals with sort of a a taboo if you like in education which is you can't distinguish by gender you know we can't we can't have these situations where boys are all one thing and girls are all another and and mark actually is one of the first people to address that in a lot of his writing he does say you know this isn't generalization but he also says any teacher will tell you there's a problem with boys asking for help and this is a lived experience it's not gender stereotyping but there is an issue where more boys are more reluctant to to put their hand up when i was reading it i was just thinking okay you know when i was at school a lot of that was down to not wanting to to be conspicuous it's quite awkward being a teenager and to put your hand up in front of people and have to speak in front of people is quite it's quite intimidating i think and but then I thought, well, surely the same is for girls. So I made a mental note to ask Gwanya about it in the podcast. Why Why are boys more awkward? I think it's about, it's about feeling self-conscious, isn't it? And I think, um, okay, so if I had to hazard a guess as to why girls are more keen to ask questions in the secondary classroom, I think girls go through that feeling of awkward self-consciousness earlier than boys. And I think by the time they've got to secondary school and to the point where you are asking the students to ask more difficult, like the, to- the topics come a bit more complex. They're sort of, they're mostly through it. There'll still be people who are always self-conscious and always, no matter, like boys and girls that, that worry about putting their hand up. But do you know what, when you were talking about that just then, it made me think of when I was in primary school and the different ways that you could hold your hand up became a big thing in my class. There was the half-hearted hand slightly raised as if like, I can't really be bothered to do this but I'm just going to put my hand up really casually and then there was like the really keen girls would put their hands up and they'd sort of point their hand and with their thumb put it underneath and that sort of was like like a neat way of putting it up raising their hand neatly and then just like, st- like the, the, and the boys in the class would just put it right up and wave it around and that kind <laughs> of most uh, it, it, untidy and disorganized way you could possibly raise your hand and just be like waving it around everywhere but the girls would like the neat girls with their neat hair and perfect uniform would put their hand nicely up up in the air and um this is a bizarre insight to primary school it's it's good isn't it because there must be a body language piece on how you put your hand up because like you get that in in adult like don't even like conferences some people are very like straight hand up as if i will i will be asking a question here and other people sort of (laughs) just go they sort of put the hand up sideways and sort of like hmm or if you're in a meeting someone sort of goes I'm Dave Cameron. I like, mm, like as if like to a side, as if like I'm kind of interested. I've kind of got a side, and it almost like preempts the way you're going to deliver your point, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 it does. There definitely must be something in the way that you raise your hand mm. that is indicative of how you feel about the way that you're asking, and how you feel about people looking at you asking that question too, and how you want to present yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, thought, I thought it was interesting as well about the um, the way a teacher reacts to requests for help. And how that was part of the thing, you know, oh, you shouldn't be asking me this question now. It's two hours before the deadline. And then it just turns that 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 boy who actually made a leap to ask for help into never asking for help again because the teachers reacted in that way. And I, my first reaction was, oh, it's quite harsh from Mark. But then I thought, actually, you know, yes, that student, as Mark says in the piece, yes, that student should have asked earlier. But also at that point, do you seize the opportunity to to go Come on, this kid's actually asked me for help at last. Let's let's try and do something. Mm, I think it, it made me really cringe that bit because I could recognise myself getting cross when kids ask questions, <laughs> and that thought of you just weren't listening. Like if you were listening 
earlier, you would have made this mistake now and you're feeling frustrated because you know that they could have done it. And that instinct to just be like, but then I, I also thought about it and I thought the more I knew the child, like the more you know them, the more you care about them, you're more likely to then initially go, oh, someone's like, oh, Mo, what have you done now? And then deal with it. And then afterwards, separately say to them, look, you could have avoided this if you did X, Y, and Z. I'm pleased we've sorted it out now, but don't leave it this late again. But the most important thing should always be help them first, tell them off later. And I thought, I also thought that something that possibly wasn't addressed was the smart ask question. The, ah. <laughs> you know, the, the, the fake ask for help, which really is designed to uh, showcase a teacher's weakness. And, he, you know, there's a guy at my school who's an expert at that. He would, he was so bright, you know, he was just on another plane to most of the kids and the staff. And he would just sit there, put his hand up and ask a question that basically said... I know more about this than you and you, you've messed this up. I mean, how, is, is that an easy spot or do, do teachers get sucked into trying to, trying to, trying to help the child who's actually not trying to be very helpful? <laughs> I think that's a real, I'm probably being a bit, bit soppy here, but I think that's one of those, those things. It's lovely when you're building a relationship with the class. So when you've got a child who does that, you can easily get them on side by playing along with it. And then you can turn it into like a thing. It's like, do we have any questions? James, would you like to know about why, why this person did? And you can, and people. Why water is wet. <laughs> you can really, you can play with it and it can become a fun thing. And I think that's all about the relationships a teacher has with their students. When you get to know them really, really well, you know who's going to ask a question like that. Or even when, if somebody's asked like a silly question in the past, you can, you can make them feel less self-conscious about it. Not a silly question, but a question which they asked and then realise straight away it was, a, as it was a silly question. They feel embarrassed about it. You can, um, you can play along with it and you can turn it into something that's a nice memory for the class and how people can feel comfortable asking questions by laughing with them when people do ask silly questions, if that makes sense. Mm. It, it does. I, I remember that I only did it once. It was an RE. And we were talking about Jesus walking on water. And I started asking the teacher about the land formations in that part of the world and whether there was a possibility it was on a sandbank just 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 below the surface of the water. And I just I look back and cringe and just think, what a I won't say the word, but it was a, it was a completely unhelpful and distracting part of the lesson. And I blame my friend Guy, who just basically did those sort of questions every every week. And I just sort of thought, oh, I'll give that a try. And, then, oh. and since then, I just think, oh, Christ, poor old Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Jones is out there. I'm, I'm really sorry. I think it sounds like quite a good sort of interjection. I can imagine for her, it was probably not. I think she just wanted to I get got... us through Mark's gospel and get us <laughs> in my yeah. parents' evening. I remember sitting down in front of my mum and dad and saying, John needs to start writing the answers the examination, examiners want to hear, not the, not the questions John wants to answer. <laughs> <laughs> that is very good advice. I don't know the kid who used to argue with me about how to spell it's. Oh no. So it was, he was, it was so irritating. He was a nice kid, but so he really thought he was right that it's was spelt I T S and the apostrophe on the end. Mm. And he just wouldn't accept that that was wrong. And I, I, he, he was really, he was really fixated on this and it would come up quite a lot, like in each lesson. Like, no, no, Harry, it's still spelt I T apostrophe S or I T S. There's, 
you know, you don't put the apostrophe on the end. And he got a dictionary out and he was like, look, look, it's in the dictionary. And you know how they put the like marks around? Yeah. And I was like, no, look, all of the words are like that. Like, no, no, honey. Like, Mm. no, that's, that's wrong. And the class just erupted and he just, that, that penny just dropped, but we could refer back to it in the future because. So you humiliated. A child no, but he, he who is struggling it funny. with his grammar. He, he, he laughed it off. Struggling. He <laughs> laughed it off. But he'd been going on for about a term, him going on and on about this spelling. It was just, it was I've just got so a good, funny. This, is, this isn't a school one, but tied to the funny questions storytelling here. We, we were on a French exchange trip. We were in Paris and we went to this bar and there was, it was filled with clocks. You know, you get some pubs and restaurants and they just have loads yeah. of something on the wall, literally just, just hun- tens and hun- hun- hundreds of them. And one of my friends said to the barman, he said, why are all the clocks in this at 10 to 11? And the barman said, because it's 10 to 11. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. You should name it Shane, really. <laughs> no, no, I won't. But that's, always, that's, become, that's always been a, a running joke in our friendship. <laughs> what time is it? 10 to 11. Um, okay, we'll have a read of that at Mark's feature and, um, and uh, maybe send in your own questions that you got from pupils we'll get some listener interaction um okay and have a look at that okay feature free uh a controversial topic i guess in some ways we've got a feature um that looks at a school who um managed to sort of end uh, permanent exclusion so simon flowers runs an all through school and for the past 15 years he's he's uh not permanently removed a child from the school. He gives us a lot of detail about how he's achieved that through mentoring, through a restorative approach. But I think the interesting thing about this piece is that it sits at a time when exclusions are so in the spotlight and any school that is deemed to exclude too much or exclude too little faces a huge backlash from some and a huge swell of support from others. And they become these totem schools you know this school shows what's wrong with exclusion or this school shows what's wrong without exclusion and we have this really sort of uh skewed debate and yet no one really ever talks about okay well if you're saying that's too little or that's too much what is the right number of exclusions permanent exclusions in a school and why and i think that's a really difficult but important question in this debate is we keep talking about exclusion as if it's a right or wrong and we lose any nuance around when it's necessary and why it's necessary. So I was going to throw that out to you two, really. Like, you know, in your experience of reporting on education, has anyone ever talked to you about this sort of magical right level of exclusions? I think it's more about the right rules for exclusions. So I think that the number of exclusions is to an extent irrelevant because it would surely change year on year, cohort to cohort, as that changes. But it's more to do with, when I speak to teachers, that they want there to be um, the right rules in place for exclusions and excluding for the right right motivations too. And that's obviously really, really important. And um, making sure that all the students feel safe and that if something does happen in the school, that, you know, that they feel that, an exclusion should happen in these sets of circumstances. And that that matters more than I think than the number. Is that still not a value judgment though, in the sense that I remember going down to a school in Plymouth and I was speaking to the head teacher there 
and I said, I was, I've driven down from Portsmouth. And she said, oh, I used to be in Portsmouth. You know, have the schools got any better? And I said, oh, what do you mean? And she said, well, when I came to Plymouth, they said, you're not going to last. You're a young head te- young female head teacher. These schools, you know, they're uncontrollable. And she said, she got there and she thought, wow, this is a walk in the park compared to where I was. This is like easy. And she said it was at that moment she realized that it's so, your view on what is an exclusion offense, what is misbehavior, what is a set of uh, appropriate rules is so based on your experience of, of and, and your skill set of dealing with children. So if you've been in a school where, you know, certain behaviors are permitted and you're used to dealing with those behaviors, or not permitted, but at least tolerated, then you move to a school where they're, where they're, they're not, you know, it's, it's a shock. And if you go in the other direction, you're completely not equipped to deal with the behavior in that sense. So you were like, well, that's, that's a fixed term exclusion offense. And they go, well, we deal with that every day. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's this really context dependent, you know, individualized context dependent. So it's your experience, your skill set, And I think that's something that's often overlooked in this debate is that general statistics around exclusions are not that helpful. Um, and, and individual narratives where people are at war on Twitter are not that helpful because, you know, it's your experience. Were you ever fixed term excluded at school? I was good. I was a good boy. I was never fixed term excluded. Not that I know of. I think I only had one detention. I think you'd know if you were fixed term excluded. No, no, I think I only had one detention. Um, one detention? Yeah, for not doing my drama homework. Um, I, I review, you were excluded, weren't I was, you? I, was, I wasn't permanently excluded, just fixed term excluded. Just got a day. I think that's an, inter- an interesting part of it is your... Um, it's a safeguarding risk around fixed term exclusions. Like mm. uh, Jarlath O'Brien's a really good commentator on this. And he said, well, what, what are you achieving with that fixed term exclusion? Because actually they quite like being at home. And actually a lot of them don't do any form of punishment while being at home. It's not like... The worst is when they turn up. The <laughs> worst is when they're on fixed term exclusion and they turn up. But that was interesting in the piece because he spoke about, um, Simon Flowers spoke about how when he first begun like this journey they had the on-site provision and that's and then eventually they didn't they didn't need any more so they can move away from that but I think lots of schools would really benefit from having that on-site provision so when a fixed term exclusion happens they're still getting their education it just means that you're you're sending that message of that behavior was unacceptable the person who's perhaps the victim of that behavior has has felt as if it's been addressed and you know it's it is tricky and I think it's really hard to retain staff if you don't have that that clear message being being sent to children that certain things are unacceptable yeah and, definitely you know i've worked in as in places where staff really care it or all places where staff really care but where things have perhaps gone wrong in the past and there's there's feelings of um well what about our safety what about making sure that we're okay and that we're not going to be be hurt whilst we're at school and that 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 does make a difference that matters Sorry, I kept thinking you'd finish, and I was going to riff off Sorry. what you said there, which I think is an important point in this article, which is that thing about staff and, and having the right sort of um, facilities to do this, because there might be people listening thinking, how on earth would this school manage this? And he's quite honest, this chap, Simon Flowers. He says, like, they appointed specialist staff, adults have been training, and he, there's a little throwaway line where he says some needed to move on from the school, and he also says we recruited teaching and support staff who were committed to inclusive approaches and willing to go the long way around with children and families. And I thought that was interesting because it shows that this wasn't just a kind of blanket, oh, we're going to do this and you've all got to get on board with it and we're going to be all 
you know, touchy-feely. It's nothing like that. It's clearly a very considered strategy with the right staff, the right level of training. And, you know, even and if teachers maybe been there for too long or who weren't as willing to be disciplined, uh, to, <laughs> to discipline the pupils, whatever it might be, they made those. They made it work like that. It wasn't just this kind of throwaway. Oh, we're going to do that, and it's just going to work, and you're going to have to deal with it. It was clearly very considered and strategized. And I think that's important, isn't it, for people listening to this? Or no, that's why this section of the magazine is always so good. I think because it really is practical and it shows about how you can do something like this. And you know, 15 years without a permanent exclusion seems sounds very notable. So, but it's not happened by just getting rid of rules or by just being like refusing to just do that just to prove a point. It's clearly done in a system where you can achieve that yeah and he, the fact that it's overscribed in every year group that they find it easy to recruit staff and that ex-students go and work at that school i think that's the true measure of success isn't it? it's clearly it's clearly worked because of those things and you can do what he's done in other schools but not everything works everywhere but it's, he's made it work for him and he must have had the support of the all those other really really important stakeholder groups like the parents and the governors and the local people that live in the local area all of that needs to buy into that that vision all of them need to buy into that vision i think that's the thing with this is that that made a really good point which was that people would judge this school and say oh it must be this or it must be that or mm. this and they they you know there's some jealousy in that and there's some there's some value judgment on that but if everyone in that school is happy them, let them be. I think in this day and age, we seem so obsessed with trying to get everything aligned to be in our own way of thinking. But if that school, everyone's happy in that school, there's no safeguarding problems in terms of as a result of this policy and the results are good, it's oversubscribed, let them, let them do what they do. And, you know, why why judge them for, for, for that? And I think that's something we could all learn. As as a as a little segue into uh, the final section of the of the podcast, I think a lack of judgment is is important, and it's an issue that is in the My Best Teacher podcast um, this week. Is that you know she, the person who it is who Dan will explain? She, she talks about this judgment for for being a, an EAL student, which was I found really interesting. That's right, it's Shappy Corsandi, the uh, the comedian. And we had a fantastic chat, actually. We ended up talking about over an hour, um, which, given I had 30 minutes scheduled with her, shows that how interesting she was and how willing she was to talk about school and her experiences. And obviously, she arrived from Iran after the revolution um, you know, as a non-English speaker. And she, her teacher, she talks about Mrs. Gaz, who helped her learn English, and talks about how magical she was in her childhood. And she sort of connected with her in later life and, and went for tea and cakes at her house and said to her, like, you, you were just the most amazing person for our family. And... It's really, really powerful stuff. And then other teachers. And, and actually, she talks about the headmaster she had at her primary school, who was a chap called Vincent McQueen. How good is that for a name? And he was a former RAF pilot in the war or something. It's like, wow, he sounds like proper, like, can picture him. <laughs> and he sounds like he was really ahead of his time because he, she said he, she remembers him regularly, like, calling pupils out for using words that now would, would certainly not be allowed in school. But back then were probably more permissible in society generally. But he was absolutely, no, you're not using those words to describe people and that you absolutely shouldn't use these words. You know, words that now we would really flinch at, but obviously back then we're quite normal. But he was like, no, you're not to do that. And so she remembers that. And then she went to secondary school. And well, sorry, but during that time, and her English, though, very quickly obviously became very good because she was often cast as the narrator in the school plays. And she learned to adopt a sort of a fake posh accent when she was out with her mum to help sort of ease this kind of social issue. She felt of like, oh, you know, are they perceiving us as foreigners? And she said, if I spoke with the kind of, oh, I'm terribly sorry, we didn't see the sign <laughs> accent, people would forgive us and then she talks about secondary school and then she has a really powerful story right at the end of the podcast she talks about this teacher 
um, who helped to get an A for her A-levels and how important that was for her as a moment when she realized she could succeed. And, and she genuinely gets emotional. You can hear it in her, in her voice as she's talking about this. And it was like the first time she realized, like, I can sort of succeed. She says it's something I consider one of my greatest triumphs, getting that A for her English A-level. And, and you know, someone, someone who's taught nationally and written books and just, you know, you, you sort of feel like, oh, yeah, of course you're going to do good at English, you know, do get a good English A-level. But not at all. It was a real teacher that got her to that place by spotting her talent and bringing it out of her. Um, and again, we talked about suddenly about the value of education and the monetary value. And yeah, okay, she's probably had a successful career financially and for the tax man. But it came from a place of, um, I see you like poetry. I'm going to help you write poetry, you know, with a little poetry book at lunchtime. Anyway, so it's a really great interview. I think anyone who's, who's listened to the podcast thus far will hopefully see it's a, it's a particularly good, good one, I think. And we've managed to circle back to the value of education and back to our discussion about small moments. I, I think we should have a moment of self-congratulation about that because, mm. you know, it doesn't happen often. Uh, so we'll, uh, that's all from us today. And we will um, we'll be back next week uh, with, a, with another um, discussion around the magazine. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.